0: I am happy to be here with you again for another episode. I am so honored to introduce our guest for today, Erica Stallings Esquire. She is a lawyer practicing out of New York and also a freelance writer. She has written for for various publications, including the New York Times, and she's also an advocate for bringing awareness to the BRCA2 gene mutation, which is a hereditary cancer mutation that causes up to an 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. And so today she's going to talk to us a little bit more about this mutation and she'll be sharing her story on the preventative measures she took in her life. So without further ado, welcome Erica to Black Woman Be Well.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here with you and your listeners.
0: Thank you. And I'm so excited to Honestly, I have learned so much from you and your platform. And so I'm really grateful that we have an opportunity to collaborate so that we can kind of, you know, tell more people about this because I think it's just so timely and much needed. So thank you for being here. And why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about your story and the decisions you made um, to prevent breast cancer?
1: Yeah, so... I always tell people that my hereditary cancer story really starts with my mother. My mother had breast cancer for the first time in 1993 when she was only 28 years old. This was a couple of years before researchers discovered the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations, which was in 1995. So my mom caught her, you know, she was doing a self-exam at home in the shower. I know she had stage one breast cancer. She had a lumpectomy, she underwent radiation and chemotherapy. And then she was in remission for about 14 years until my senior year of college. And the reason I always, when I tell the story that I tie it to college is because where my family is from is a pretty rural part of North Carolina. We're from a town called Goldsboro. And if you, we'll talk about this later, but genetic testing is done by medical professionals called genetic counselors. And so where we live, I've actually like looked recently, there are no genetic counselors within 50 miles of like my hometown. But because I was going to school at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, which has a nationally recognized cancer center, my mom decided to do her treatment for her second diagnosis at UNC Chapel Hill. And so when she was a patient there, her oncologist had looked at her medical history and was like, oh, you've had two breast cancers before the age of 45, and you have triple negative breast cancer, which for your listeners, if they're not aware, triple negative breast cancer is a form of breast cancer that's more aggressive. It is less responsive to traditional chemotherapy treatments, and it is more common in Black women. So her oncologist recommended that she undergo genetic uh, testing and my mom learned that she carries a BRCA2G mutation. And when a person carries a mutation, they have a 50% chance of giving that mutation to their child. Mm-hmm. It can be passed on from, you know, mothers to children or fathers to children. So I've known since I was 22 that I had a 50% chance of having this mutation.
0: And that's because, and so it's almost kind of little you're, you were a little bit fortunate because there really was no, the genetic counselors that you were saying, they weren't in your area. You just got kind of lucky because your mother happened to seek treatment at a particular institution and that she found out that she carried it. And that's how you became aware of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think about it a lot. Like if my mama had not Gotten, you know, had not gone to UNC for a treatment. Would we know, or would we wow. know about this when we knew about it? So, I I had already been accepted to law school. I moved to Washington DC for law school, and then I moved to New York City to start my legal career. And then when I was 28, I was like, okay, I'm the same age my mom was when my mom had cancer for the first time, and I was in a pretty serious relationship at the time with someone who had lost their mom to colon cancer. Mm. It it happened like really fast, like she had been diagnosed with colon cancer, and then she died like two months later. She had super advanced colon cancer. So I was like, okay, I'm given my age and the fact, kind of where I'm I'm at in my life, I should just figure out what is going on with this whole Mm -hmm. hereditary cancer situation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I I made the decision to get. I guess one thing I want to point out for your listeners too, you know, there's genetic counseling and then there's genetic testing. So the counseling is the appointment where you talk about your family history, you talk about cancer diagnoses that have been, that have been in your family on both sides of your family tree, you know, the genetic counselor or oncologist explains to you sort of the risk factors involved. Like if you do come back positive for a mutation and then they take, if you decide to go forward with testing, you know, they take a blood sample, um, and, and they ship it off to the lab. Okay. So. I had my genetic counseling appointment in June of 2014, and I got the results in July 2014 that I had tested positive for a a BRCA2 mutation. And the recommendation from my doctor was that given my family history, I should have a preventative double mastectomy as soon as I could. And she said, you know, I... And how... Again, you're 24. I was 20. I was 29. Because by the time I made the decision and actually like got tested and got the results, um, I had turned 29. Um, And she was like, you know, you should get a second opinion, Mm -hmm. you know. But she's like, that is, you know, that is a recommendation that I would give you. And I was like, okay. And I think for me, you know, I I feel like two ways about it because I talk about this story a lot. And the first is I tell people even though I was aware of the situation and I knew that my mom, you know, I knew my mom had it. I knew I had a 50% chance of having it. I had done a lot of research. Nothing can emotionally or mentally prepare you to receive the information. Mm. But at the same, but so that was like one part of it. And then at the same time, I was like, okay, well, let's like put all this information in context. I know I have a a family history of breast cancer, which even if I didn't have a mutation would put me more at risk for breast cancer. Now I've got this, mutation that increases my lifetime risk of developing cancer to about 85%. If I don't have a mastectomy now and I get breast cancer, they're going to probably recommend I have a mastectomy anyway, given how high risk I am. So I can have a mastectomy now and at least do it when I'm like healthy and on my own terms and not undergoing, you know, treatment for breast cancer. That was sort of the calculus I had made. And, you know, in a very kind of like vain way, I guess, although I guess it's not vain. By the time I, like when I was thinking about getting tested, I had also started doing research about breast reconstruction. And so, you know, by the time I had made the decision, doctors were really comfortable doing what's called a nipple sparing mastectomy. So what that means is that, you know, they make a decision and they take as much breast tissue as possible, but the patient is able to actually like reserve, like preserve the nipple, which gives you a much more like natural, like looking outcome. And I was like, okay, if I can do that and, you know, drop my, drop my cancer risk from about 85% to less than 5%, this is something I should do.
0: What, but I can't even imagine at 29, having to make that decision and, it, and and even to like conduct the research that you did to figure out like how to like how to how to make that decision. I can't even imagine the emotional stress you might have. I don't know if that's true or not. If but what mental gymnastics you had to do to kind of still rationalize through the process to make a decision like that at 29.
1: Yeah, you know, I I will say a couple of things. I think this is something that Black women do too often mm-hmm. I think my I think you know the, those months after I got diagnosed it was really hard for a few different reasons the first was that the relationship I was the relationship I was in ended a couple of weeks like after I got this diagnosis which I think that relationship was going to end anyway I think something like this happens it just accelerates the outcome either mm-hmm. you get super close or you break up and we broke up So that was a huge stressor. And I
0: read read your story, and I want to make—I want to circle back
1: to that. Okay. (laughs) Experience
0: at some point, yes. But keep going.
1: (laughs) Right. So I was like, okay. Um, I thought I was in this, you know, and part of the reason I felt comfortable getting the test and being like, oh, I'm gonna have a mastectomy, was kind of like, oh, the I'm, you know, I don't have to worry about dating, right? I've kind of like got this situation locked in. This is not what I expected. It was really hard to tell my mom. My mom felt responsible for this, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's just an accident of genetics. So that was hard. And, you know, having conversations with family and friends was also really hard. I, I mean, I can laugh about this now, but I have a, I mean, we're actually still friends, but like one of my, you know, exes from law school lost his mom to breast cancer when he was really young, like he was four and it has impacted him his entire life. So I think besides telling like my mom and my college roommate, he was the hardest person to tell because we like went to oh, dinner wow. yeah. and he like, he like almost started crying at the table. And I was like, wow. and I was like, okay, where was all this? I was like, where was this deep emotional person when we were together? But also too, like, you know, I was like, no, I was like, look, the whole point of this is I'm going to take action to not get cancer. Right. Like it's going to be fine. Right. So like, you know. Chill. so I think the result of all that to actually answer your question is I pushed all my feelings down right um, I was like which was what I think black women do we're just like yeah. this hard thing is happening I'm gonna just push through it you're right and, and which in hindsight was not good and I wish you, you know I love I have kind of like a girl crush on my the oncologist who did my genetic testing She's, her name is Dr. Julia Smith And she works with a lot of young women who are dealing with hereditary cancer. And she said to me, like the day she gave me the results, she was like, Erica, this is hard. You are 29. You are not supposed to be thinking about death and all these other things. I think you should talk to a therapist. And I was like, no, I'm good. She was like, you sure? And I was like, yeah. And then post-surgery, I realized I was like, oh, I'm really not doing well. And so I in the therapist I started seeing and still see works with a lot of women who carry BRCA mutations and I really wish I had started seeing her at the beginning because I just had all these like really complex feelings of like this is great I get to save my life but I'm also losing my breast and this is hard
0: yeah
1: and I'm angry and just I a don't whole know why of black stuff.
0: women are like that like we when it when, when we're I think it Well, obviously it's just a skill set you learn through trauma. Like, you know, when you're met with a, a, with an issue or a problem, we're just first like action-minded, like I ain't got time to cry. I gotta go to work. I gotta figure this out. I gotta raise the money. I got, you know, you just go into problem solving mode because who has time to cry when you, you know, when you gotta solve a problem and I don't know, that's just something that's really unique. To our experience and I, and I, I won't say that other um, races or ethnicities don't have don't experience that too but I know that it's so deeply rooted in um, our history of being disenfranchised and obviously slavery so that's just such an interesting experience that you had to go through too like you had to learn on the back end like oh I, I probably should have spent time on my emotional you know the hard work too.
1: I actually, I wrote, I wrote a piece about that, not about BRCA, but there's actually a concept called the superwoman schema, um, which is research Mm. about black women. And we, right. And we feel like we always have to be the superwoman. And some of that is for the reasons you've identified, right. Like slavery. And so, you know, the history of black people in America, black women being the backbone, you know, some of that is the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that is black women are raised even when they're young to be like, you're gonna grow up to be the strong black woman who holds everybody together, right? So it's it's very deep, it's very yeah. deep and layered. Uh, and the other thing I was gonna say is, I do want to give. Um, I don't know if they'll listen because they have two kids and a possible on the way, so they're busy. But you know, my college roommate and her husband like really. I mean, a lot of people came through for me at that time, but I really appreciated it because they were living in North Carolina at that time, and I was living in New York, and I was just like kind of a mess. And they, like, came up and kind of, like, staged an intervention of, like, we know that this is really, we know that this is really hard, but, like, we love you a lot. And, like, it's, like, it's going to be okay. Because, like, I would, like, sometimes come home from work and just, like, I would come home and I would just, like, cry in the apartment because I was, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm never going to meet anybody. This is all just, like, very scary. And I think my roommate could tell that I was, like, not doing well. And they, like, flew up, like, a couple months after my diagnosis. So we're just, like you know, this is really hard and we're here for you. Like, let's. I
0: said it was an internet like they really came through and was just like, we're going to have a moment.
1: Yeah, you're right. Cause they're, you know, they're like, we're going we're gonna to push through this, but yeah, you got to come on. And I was like, okay.
0: Yeah. Um, let uh, You said a lot of things that I want to get to at some point, but I do want to backtrack just a little bit because one of the things that, I, one of the things I just feel so happy about in connecting with you is that, um, I, I'm, I'm really fortunate that you even introduced this to me. I had no clue what it was. And so a lot of what I've learned is based on the content you've written and done and shared with me. And I know a lot of the listeners are probably learning right along with me. Um, so could you kind of just define it a little bit or just kind of share exactly in a brief summary what BRCA2 is and how is it actually passed down?
1: Yeah, so I hope this isn't confusing, right? So every, everybody has BRCA1 and 2 genes. Okay. And then people who have healthy BRCA1 and 2 genes, those genes make proteins that actually help, you to pre- help to prevent cancer. Okay. So in an individual like myself, I have a mutation, I have a, a faulty BRCA2 gene. So my body is not making those protective proteins which is why my risk of various cancers like skyrockets, right? Because it's not just the breast cancer risk. I'm at a high risk for ovarian cancer, colon cancer, melanomas, and pancreatic cancer. And I will say, even though the BRCA1 and 2 genes and the mutations were discovered in 1995, you know, there's obviously still research going on. They have not necessarily figured out why those, gene mutations are so associated with um, like reproductive cancer. So like particularly the breast and ovarian cancer, there's still doing research on that. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations can be, they're like passed down, they're hereditary. So a parent can, you know, a parent has a 50, 50% chance of like passing it to their child and it just sort of goes down the family line um, in that way, right? So I want to, I do want to point out a couple of things for your listeners, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun. So if I am, you can move it around. Yes. Yeah. So part of the reason that I do so much of this, I do a lot of speaking and writing on this topic. And the reason that I do it is because I think for all the like breast, you know, there's kind of breast cancer awareness. I don't know if that has been efficiently um, communicated to Black women, right? Mm. So. Regardless of your family history, Black women in the United States, there's at least two professional organizations that recommend that all Black women at the age of 30, starting at age 30, talk to their doctor to get a risk assessment for breast cancer, because Uh we are so, we are at high risk for breast cancer solely due to our ethnic racial status in the United States, right? So that's like one thing. Okay. And then on-
0: Age of 30.
1: Age age of 30. 30. Okay. You should just like have the conversation with your doctor about like, hey, I'm black woman, <laughs> which I know sounds crazy, but that's like, well, the let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. so that's one part of it. And then if you have a family history, so we'll get to the, 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 the mutation part in a second, let's just say you have a family history,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you you're at higher risk solely because you have a family history, right? So a normal person has about 12% chance of developing breast cancer. Then you learn family history on top of that. You're at a higher risk. And you're supposed to start your mammograms 10 years before the first diagnosis in your family. So let's say your mom was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 45. You should start having mammograms. Talk about starting your mammograms at age 35, because you have that family history involved, right? And then if you've got a family history, you should also talk to someone about genetic testing, because your family history of cancer might be inherited so I know that I know that's a lot I so my
0: just walk us through again so first step at 30 you need to have you need to talk to somebody about it just just on being black like initiate a conversation Mm -hmm. if you have someone in your family um from the date they've been diagnosed you should have a mammogram 10 years different from when they so if they were diagnosed at 45 I should be getting mammograms at
1: 35. Yeah. Correct.
0: Okay. And then you should engage in a conversation about genetic testing.
1: Correct. Okay. Because one of the, right. So not, so not granted, I meet people all the time who do have a family history of cancer. They don't have BRCA1 or 2. They probably have some other mutation that has not been discovered yet. Right. Okay. But another thing for your listeners to know is that now the medical recommendation is that any woman who, who's had breast cancer should be should be te- should undergo genetic testing, even if they're you know com- they've done their completed their cancer treatment. And what that does is, if you know an individual has it, you can then go back and test all the family members, right? Because now you're like, okay, we know this person has it, so their children have a fifty percent chance of having it. Their siblings have a percentage chance of having it. That's called cascade testing, is when you identify. The individual in the family who has a mutation and then you trace you go back and try to like identify as many other family members as possible so if there's any listeners on here who have been diagnosed with breast cancer i would encourage you to have that conversation
0: yes. and
1: i hope i'm not jumping the gun but the last thing i want to stress to your to listeners right because i realize i probably skipped some steps why is it why are black women so at risk why do we have started having these conversations at age 30. Just because the breast cancer in Black women shows up really differently than it does in white women, we are more likely to be diagnosed before the age of 50. We are much more likely to be diagnosed when our cancer is at an advanced stage, and we're 42% more likely to die from it, and we're more likely to have the triple negative breast cancer that I talked about that's more aggressive. So but when you look at current a lot of guidelines in the United States, right, like current guidelines is that people should start mammograms at 50 that is based on data from white women that is not based on data about us which is why we just have to move we just have to move differently and the last thing i'll say is if you ever undergo you would you know if you ever undergo genetic counseling or testing all the cancers in your family are relevant right so for example my mother's father was never tested but my mom my grandfather died of prostate cancer which is where I suspect the mutation in our family comes from, right? Because in men, they don't get breast cancer, they get prostate cancer, they get colon cancer. You know, Beyonce's dad, for example, um, who is a BRCA2 mutation carrier, right? So when you're, if you have conversations with your family about cancer, it's all cancers are relevant is what I should say.
0: I, I see. Yeah. What I love about that too, because everything you just shared and listen, BWBW um, BW family if you need to rewind and take these notes, get your piece of paper and your pen rewind and write down you know the, the things that Erica just shared with us because a lot of times we enter into these physician spaces and you don't know what you don't know so you don't even know what to ask. you don't know the language or the terminology you don't know what to you know you don't even know um, how to frame a question. you're just there right? So Erica has really equipped us with a lot of tools to be able to go in with um, informed questions to hopefully um, have more informed conversations for you to make decisions and to, and to navigate the system properly. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what your, uh, some of the things that you said, um, I learned from the video I watched on the, and how do you say it, Bresser? Basser. Center. Yeah. That you're affiliated with their work. Um, and I watched the video you two, um, the video that you did, the interview you did with Dr. Doctor Shaw. Oh, yeah. And um, so a lot of the things you just said I had learned from that video. And I was just honestly floored at the racial disparities. Um, uh, hearing that, like, the mortality rate in Black women is 41% higher. Uh, despite there being lower incidences of breast cancer it, it, um, in comparison to white, so that that's crazy to me that we die more frequently even though there's less incidence of us actually having it in comparison to white women. Um, and so I don't know. can you do you want to speak a little bit about um, this disparity and why is it there? like why is it so
1: wide? Yeah, no I was, one thing I want to also say to you, I want to I'll answer the question. One thing I want to say to your listeners, because I've been I've been doing some, I, I wind up reading a lot of like academic papers, because when I talk, I always want to be very well informed. And so a major difference between Black women, and I, I recently read this study that looked at differences between um, Black women and white women who are at higher risk for cancer, let's say because they've got a family history, right, and how they manage that. And one of the big differences is that white women are much more likely to be having conversations about breast cancer risk with specialists, right? So they're seeing an oncologist, they're seeing someone who knows genetics, they're getting better information. Whereas for black women, we're having these conversations with our primary care doctors or OBGYNs who don't, you know, are not necessarily specialists in these topics, right? So I understand that I have, I'm able to access a lot of privilege. But I would encourage anyone listening to this, right? Like if you've got a family history of cancer, mm-hmm. if you can talk, talk to a specialist, right? Someone who really, really knows this stuff. And the other thing that I thought was interesting in that study is that it, at least in the woman they interviewed, black women were much less likely to get a second opinion or push back on their doctors. I think some of that or what they were saying is that, you know, black women are like, well, if my doctor says it, it must be true. And I know them and I've built up trust. So I'm just going to stay there. And what I would say is, is don't do that. Right. Right. If you feel like your concerns are not being heard, it is 100% okay to push back, to get that second opinion, you know, to like ask all the questions.
0: Something that's important to me in equity work And the equity work that I do is making sure to differentiate that race isn't actually a thing. We all know race is a social construct. It is made up. There's no genetic, there's no chromosome that people can point to to say that makes you Black or white, right? It's a construct. So... I'd like to clarify that being black and woman doesn't doesn't necessarily make you genetically more whatever, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, race in the the medical community really is just a placeholder or a substitute for other factors, you know, so like ancestry, environment, um, socioeconomic status, and what you just described, honestly, is access to healthcare second opinions, informed um, physician opinions. And so like, this is not about, um, so the mortality rate, for example, is not because black women just die more often. Exactly. Right, it's not a race thing. It's really about the certain circumstances that we have to exist in. And thank you so much for you even acknowledging that even as a black woman, you recognize you have some privilege in in, you know, in how you were able to access um, the help you needed, and that you're empowering, you're leveraging that privilege to empower us to be able to navigate the system a little bit better because it's not designed for us. Obviously, through the statistics, it's not designed for us to to even be successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, going back to like why that disparity exists, you know, it's. I, I took a deep breath because I get so upset about it. Mm. Pick pick any part of what I call like the cancer spectrum or the cancer journey and black women face disadvantages in accessing good care and good information right. You know, some of it is what I alluded to and I'm talking about my mom's story right which is that in the United States your zip code is the biggest determinant of your health outcomes right. And that's because when you live, black people are much more likely to live in segregated neighborhoods. And when you live in a segregated neighborhood, there's all types of issues with like access to healthcare period, access to quality healthcare, all those things. And then let's take something like mammograms, which all the messaging around breast cancer is like, go get your mammogram. But there's research that even when black women do that, there are delays in their mammogram results being communicated to them by the provider, right? So like that, like that in and of itself is a problem. Wow. Obviously, if you look at certain, you know, zip codes or neighborhoods, they may not have access to quality mammography facilities, which then you have to travel. So that's, an, that's like an issue. Yeah. Obviously, the dismissal mm-hmm. um, of, of people's, you know, complaints or, or saying something, saying, you know, saying that there is an issue. I think there's this information gap. And then even when Black women get diagnosed, even when you control for class, right, there's still delays in starting treatment. So there's just all of these yeah. inequities. But I, I thought about this a lot. And I think, honestly, some of it, actually, I think probably 70% is what I call like an empathy problem. I think that people don't care. And I think the reason that they don't care <laughs> is because I think for some white people, right, if you don't ever have any encounters with black people and all you hear about us is from the media, you're just like, wow, black people just have really bad lives. And then you're like, oh, black people getting cancer. Oh, that's just another bad thing that happened to these people who are always going through bad things in the United States, right? It's not a tragedy. Whereas when a white woman gets breast cancer, people are like, oh my my God, right? Um, And the reason I do so much writing is because if you look at like breast cancer campaigns, it's always white women. So now it becomes this thing that's like a white woman's disease and people can have so much empathy and want to fix it. Whereas for black woman, it's just like, yeah, that's another, another bad thing that happened to y'all. Right. So that's my theory that is not based in science. It's just based in wow. giving it a lot of, giving it so much, you know, so much thought. That's
0: um, a powerful analysis though, because it speaks to what it's like to be a marginalized population people like you said like you know well that's just their tragedy and then if you don't already have a place at the at the seat of the table you know the example you gave with the breast cancer awareness and the pink stuff and the campaigns it reminds me a lot of like the women's suffrage movement that was very much a white feminist movement and even black women wanting to be a part of the cause and to speak and and to be a part of the movement we're still told y'all can march with us but march in the back
1: right right
0: you know, <laughs> it's just like the same thing. Um, a woman's issue ends up becoming a white woman's issue. Um, and then, you know, black and brown people are still dismissed. So uh, that analysis you gave kind of hit me hard because I think it's, it's a powerful, albeit unscientific, I think <laughs> there's some merit in it.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I'll say, two, I'll say two things really quickly too, right? The first is on this white woman thing, right? you know, in the time that I have spent in what I'll call the breast cancer community in the past six years, it's been really frustrating because, you know, I have organizations, not, not Basser, they, I think are, they're very receptive and, Mm -hmm. you know, have really taken a lot of my advice and guidance about like the need to be better. But there are some other organizations that I will not name that like will only contact me when they want to do stuff on like racial disparities. Which on the one hand, yes, that is what I write about and what I know about. So yes, please ask me to do those things. But I can talk about other things, right? I can talk about dating. I can talk about the reconstruction process. I can talk about the psychosocial element. I can talk about thinking about kids, right? And when you allow Black women to also share those stories, it helps to build that empathy. So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is our medical system is bad. When I, I, I tell people all the time, I am... You know, if you're thinking about genetics as a way to have better health outcomes, I am an example of that, right? I had an 85% chance of getting breast cancer, now it's less than 5%. All the things that had to line up correctly for that to happen is a lot. I had yeah. to know what this was. I had to have really good health insurance. I had to have a job that gave me the flexibility to go to, go to all these appointments, take four weeks off to have a surgery. I had to, what I call medical literacy. My grandmother was a nurse. I feel very comfortable talking to doctors and interacting with them. But again, that is a skill I had to have. I had to pay all these co-pays because I was seeing specialists. And sometimes I'm like, I'm a pretty well-resourced person. And there were times when I was overwhelmed by this, right? (laughs) And so I know for other people, I I could see why someone would just say like, this is too much. So it's also a result of our medical system only works for the extremely well-privileged and well resource, which is in and of itself our problem.
0: And I also want to just have a disclaimer. I don't want to bash white women. I know it can come off that way or whatever sometimes, and that is not what this is about. Uh, it's really just a place for us to recognize um, the gaps in this, in this cause, right? Like let's recognize that breast cancer awareness has been amplified by white female voice, which is fine if you have that privilege. All you have to do is leverage it. Just remember to include us, <laughs> you know, um, amplify some black and brown voices to make it more of a holistic um, awareness, right? So that and uh, you know, we're raising all these funds. Help. That's what equity really is: helping those that don't have enough or have the access that you have. So it's more of a lesson. Um, For my white listeners that are listening, um, this is the experience, the black female experience. And if you have a place of privilege, don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel bad about it. But by all means, please leverage it to help um, because we need it. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I had a chance to read your article from thecut.com where you talked about relearning how to date after your double mastectomy. And you kind of talked about it a little bit already, but what was it like for you because you you were in a relationship when you were getting tested, right? Correct. Okay. So what was it like for you to go through that in your relationship? And then like how did you ask her, like how did you find your womanhood, sense of beauty? Can you just tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent question. You know, I I'm not decking the question. I will say and we'll get to this a little bit more. The whole experience made me really realize how like shallow my thinking around relationships was and I and I think <laughs> this is another no I think this is another thing that impacts black women right so I went I was in law school I went to law school between 2007 and 2010 and I swear to you I feel like every day I would pick up like the Washington Post or some other art newspaper and all the headlines would be like successful black women can't find men like, there was this weird, no, it was, there was this weird epidemic at that time where people were writing all these articles about how, like, if you were Black woman with a degree, you were never going to be able to get a man. It, it was like a cottage industry of, like, Black woman dysfunction, right? And I think yeah. that kind of, I think I internalized that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, dating is hard, and dating in New York City is hard. So by the time I had met the person that I was dating when I got tested, you know, there was sort of this sense of, like, oh, God, like, thank God I just... Like, I found a man, right? And so, I, <laughs> and I say that because I ignored looking back, I ignored some red flags. But I, you know, part of it was that like he checked a lot of boxes on paper. He was very good looking, he worked in private equity, he made a lot of money, had an MBA. And I was just like, all right, he's good. Oh, yeah, he that's a black, black, black man, he's black, makes a lot of money, buys buy me nice things, right? Great, let's. That's use, great. Let's do this, right? So we break up in like late August, right? Which is like maybe a month after I got the testing results. Um, and in terms of how I, in terms of how I sort of like found myself again, that's a great question. I think therapy helps a lot. Um, I started seeing the therapist two months after I had my mastectomy, so that was incredibly useful. I think the other thing, which like this is, this is a, a brag. My plastic surgeon did an amazing job. Like I have actually, I actually had, I did like a boudoir photo shoot before I had my surgery because it felt important to me to like have these photos where I looked really sexy before I had this mastectomy. But I've like looked at those photos and then like looked at photos of myself now. And really like, but for the scar that runs underneath, there isn't really a lot of, there isn't really a lot of difference um, and when I met my plastic surgeon for the first time, she actually said that to me. Like she, you know, I like, she looked at me and she was just like, I'm going to get a great result. She's like, I know I'm going to get like, she's, she's very confident. She was like, I know I'm going to get a good result. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's do this thing. Um, you know, I think some of well, let me, and then I'm, I know I'm rambling a little bit because I have so many thoughts. I do think sexuality in breast cancer patients or people like myself who have this hereditary risk really goes untalked about. I mean, I remember when I had kind of like my last appointment with my plastic surgeon, like post the surgery, you know, she was kind of just like checking that everything was healing. And I wanted to ask her when I could start having sex again, but I was too awkward to ask her. So I was like, I kept dancing around it. I was like, you know, I just wanted to ask you when I could get back to all normal activities that (laughs) that might be more strenuous. And she's really direct. So she's like, oh, are you asking me when you can have sex again? And I was like,
0: yes and she was because like that's not the best politically correct way
1: to ask because it was just awkward no one tells you how to ask for that and so I was like yeah, sex. Yeah. And she's like she's like four weeks from now right um you know some some of it some of it is some of it was time um I guess for me my sexuality has never really felt connected to my breast whereas like if someone took my butt away I don't know if I could take it <laughs> I mean it's like that's like ai I don't I'd be like oh my god what's happening um but but like a lot of it a lot of it was time and I took a break from dating for a while because I realized I was sort of like putting myself out there and I wasn't really a whole I, I had no business dating anybody because I didn't have my own stuff together right. and so for honestly I think that was a long-winded way of saying it. I think therapy was like the biggest yeah in terms of like in terms of like healing I think what it's
0: helpful for me um and I hope it's helpful for the listeners like especially when I read your article like okay so like there is life after a mastectomy like and you can find love like you can't it's gonna be awkward you know dating people and like having to possibly explain you know and obviously there might be rough patches But there is there is life after like and for you to kind of share with us that therapy really helped and, you know, the time you just have to kind of take the time to work through it and that your boobs look great. That's really a hopeful thing for someone that because I can't imagine like getting the results back that, you know, if 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 I did have it, I would I'm very connected to my boobs. yeah. You know, I, like that is, I, I would have a lot of questions about, will I be like, will I feel like a woman after, you know, and so knowing that you keep you, with, you know, with good reconstruction, reconstruction surgery, you can still feel confident knowing that you can still date and like for you, like, aren't you, you know, at this point, I know that you're engaged. Um, so there's love after. So yeah. I think that's good for us to hear. We're just about wrapping up, but I did want to just um, ask you one more thing because I wrote your, I read your, um, piece in HelloGiggles.com, oh, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, how I wish people talked about living a BRCA mutation or how I wish people talked to me about living with. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> um, in that article, you say in many ways, I thought that having my mastectomy would be the end of my BRCA journey. However, Four and a half years since my diagnosis, I realized that I'm at the beginning. So, what has been, you really dived into and told us about what happened before, and you gave us wonderful medical advice and ways, you know, to navigate that that system and that process. What's the journey been like after? Um, Any advice or insights you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah. So, you know, BRCA is, right? The B stands, the B is associated with breast, right? And so I think when people hear it, they only think about the breast cancer risk. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, it's associated with a whole bunch of other cancers. So really, you know, post-mastectomy, the biggest kind of health thing that I have to keep an eye on is my risk of developing ovarian cancer, Mm -hmm. which I don't have a family history of ovarian cancer. So when I've talked to my doctors about it, they're a little bit less concerned because also between like BRCA1 mutations and BRCA2 mutations, the risk for ovarian cancer with BRCA2 BRCA2 mutations is a little bit less. So what I do every six months is that I have a transvaginal ultrasound where they go in and they take pictures of my ovaries uh, just to see if there's anything growing there. And then I have a blood test called the CA-125, which you know, it's looking for certain like hormonal elevations. And so if it was higher, that might be an indication um, that I could have ovarian cancer. it every year? I do it every six months. Every six months? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Right. So I guess this is a good point for listeners. Why do I have to do it so often? To be honest with you, ovarian cancer doesn't have good screening mechanisms the way we have for breast cancer or other cancers. And so because of that, ovarian cancer, it's pretty deadly, right? It's often not caught until it's advanced pretty far. So what they're trying to do with all these, gives all these sort of enhanced screenings, right? Is that if I were to develop ovarian cancer, at least they could catch it early when it's very treatable. The current recommendation for BRCA2 mutation carriers is to have their ovaries removed, you know, around the age of like
0: 38,
1: 39. Wow. Okay. So there, is currently scientific research going on. The working theory is that ovarian cancer actually develops in your fallopian tubes and then migrates to your ovary. So what they are doing clinical trials on at the moment is take just taking the fallopian tubes out, letting women have a natural menopause and then taking out the ovaries. So my hope is I'm 35. So my hope is that in the next three or four years, mm. I will be able to pursue that option of, just having my Philippine tubes removed, going through menopause naturally, and then having my ovaries removed, right? So obviously, there's some, some, des- there's like decisions that have to be made with respect to that. Yeah. And, you know, I, my, my mind changes a lot, because, you know, we're taping this episode during a pandemic, I, I, I'm not sure how about my feelings about having children. But obviously, there's like a little bit of a timeline, right? Yeah. Because, whole thing going on with the Philippine tubes and so that's been a really big thing you know not big thing but just a thing I have to think yeah. about
0: yeah
1: I see a dermatologist once a year to check for melanoma I see a ophthalmologist once a year to check for melanoma because you you know where you get melanoma in addition to your skin you get melanoma in your eyes because you get a lot of sunlight did
0: not know that
1: yeah that's yeah And I will start colonoscopies in a couple of years. Wow. I don't need to have colonoscopies yet. So I, I, you know, when I wrote that article a couple of years ago, it's kind of like getting people to understand that this is really like a chronic condition Yeah. that, you know, it's kind of, it's not just like you have the mastectomy and you stop dealing with it. It's, It's an ongoing. It's a journey. It's a journey.
0: It's a journey.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I also just don't, I want people to talk about cancer in this country in a different way. Like, I think all the stuff that we put around it, around like survivor, warrior, et cetera, I think doesn't allow people to experience the full emotional journey. Oh, <laughs> Right? Like
0: Erica, that's a word. <laughs> wow. You've made me think very deeply with that little statement. Because, you
1: know. I, this is something I was reflecting on because I am not going with, I kind of, I want to write a book about this experience because there are almost no memoirs from Black women about health issues, period, particularly breast cancer. We could take a whole episode about that. But I think, we were, you know, I was reflecting on this memory. So I had my mastectomy in 2014 and I, I get a manual exam done every six months of the breast tissue that's still there. And in like, it was like fall of 2017 and I was having this like weird pain on on one side and I was like, well, I have almost no breast tissue left. So this is probably nothing, but given, you know, I have a mutation, I need to just like go get it checked out. And I had like a tiny, I had like a tiny, like lump in the implant, which actually just turned out to just be like some scarring tissue. But there was like a couple, there was like a three day period where like, I didn't know what it was. Right you know my oncologist was like yeah I feel something here I'm 99% sure this is nothing but why don't we just do an MRI really to just like put you at ease because I don't think there's anything but like sure let's check right and those three days were really hard I was just like yeah oh my god what if I'm that extremely rare chance that you know of the the tissue that's left it's cancerous how would I tell my friend like I, I was it was like really I was like a mess And so I, you know, it was nothing, but I say all that to say, it's not like those fears have like magically disappeared. They're still there. And sometimes they're more intense than not. But um, especially as I get older, you know, and I have, not that I didn't have people in my life that I loved when I was 29. Right. But, you know, my friends are starting to have kids and I'm very close to them. And there's just a lot of people I would like, just be so, devastated if I had a health issue. So I guess that was a long winded way of saying it. the fear never goes away, which is yeah. why I hate survivor language. Right. Cause yeah. it's all rooted in not letting people express the full spectrum of emotions.
0: <laughs> and, 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 and like you said, it really, is, it's a, it's a good time for us to diversify how we talk about, like you said, how we actually talk about cancer and maybe there, you know, there's space for a survivor, Stories and, and, and language, especially in those moments where you just need that, like you know. But there's also a need for, yeah, let's actually talk about it in a way um, that speaks true to the experience and what people and the journey um, people go through. And I love that you have an idea to write a book because uh, if there are no memoirs of black black women um, black women medical and health journey, you, you should. We would love to have you do it, obviously.
1: Uh, <laughs> that goes back to that empathy gap I talked about. You don't ever hear anybody's stories, right? Whereas, like if you go on Amazon, there's like 35. Yeah, um, I never thought
0: of it before till you just said it. That's crazy. Well, I know if you, you do a lot. And so writing a book would be crazy right now in your life. But if you ever find the energy, I will be your cheerleader.
1: <laughs> Yay. See, that's Black women lifting each other up. Thank uh, God. <laughs> So, okay, I promise I'll stop talking because I know you said you have white women who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. I also wanna say it's, it's not to attack, but I wish I could find it. There's a graph that traces um, like the improvements in outcomes that we've made in breast cancer in the United States like in the past, like 30 to 35 years, like 99% of the benefits that we have achieved in terms of survivorship outcomes, just better outcomes period, have like all gone to white women. So really, like, for a black woman, like we have not really made that much progress in terms of like improving our breast cancer outcomes. Really, all of the like advantages that have happened have all gone to white women, right? So no. that's not to blame white women, right? But I think that is to say people really need to think about yeah. where does that come from, right? Obviously, there's a physician bias aspect yep. to that, right? But what what is a role that advocacy and awareness plays in that, right? So. Exactly. And I will, and I, I will say, because this has been happening a lot, this is being taped in February and this has really been getting on my nerves. I feel like people, Black women's like pain and trauma is often subject to memification mm-hmm. And so I feel like every time I'm on Instagram right now, you know, people are like, it's Black History Month and Black women are much, uh, 42% more likely to from breast cancer than, than white women, right? And they just throw it up there. And I'm like, okay, you threw out that statistic. So what are you going to do about it? Are you oh. going to, like, you know what I mean? Like, are you going to invite me to be on a panel? Are you going to feature some Black patients? Are you, like, what are you doing to be better? Why are you just throwing out these statistics with no change? Why are you memifying me? Sorry. I to preach it right
0: now. Whoa. Whoa. Our pain and trauma is so easily memified. That hit me hard. And you are absolutely right. You throw up this stuff about the experience of Black women, but what? You have a nice little graphic, but what?
1: Yeah, I don't want to take original credit for that idea because actually, there were some really smart Black women writers who wrote about that over the summer as it relates to Breonna Taylor, and that was what really got me thinking. Thinking about that, right? Like, tragic things happen to Black women, and it kind of just gets reduced to these really quippy yeah. sound bites that people don't. They just don't think, they just don't think about them.
0: Well, thanks for giving credit to the, to, to, to your source, but thank you for sharing it. I needed to hear that because that hit me hard. That's a word right there. I, I really appreciate that.
1: If I find one of the pieces, I'll definitely send it to you. I know Jenna Worsham wrote about this for the Times. Okay. And I want to say there's a young, there was a black woman writer who wrote about this for Teen Vogue, but if I find it, I will send it to you.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And honestly, you just, you've, you've spent the whole day. I mean, this whole conversation has been educational, but also you just added some insights that have helped me that I, and I know are helping our listeners. So I really appreciate you being with us today. Um, And so just before I, you know, do a little outro and stuff, if there was um, one thing that you want our listeners to take away from um maybe it's advice or a summary from something we talked about what is it what do you want to what do you want to leave our listeners with
1: yeah so I know I spent a lot of time talking about how the medical system doesn't work but the thing is we have made incredible advances in treating breast cancer right particularly when it's caught at like stage one you know I think now like stage one breast cancer has like a 95 percent like five-year survivor, rate, And once you hit five years at the end of being a survivor, you are considered to be cured. Yeah. So as scary as all this stuff is part of the reason that like I do want Black women to have these conversations is because, you know, we are at higher risk, but if you can catch it early, there are like tons of options. If you have a BRCA2 mutation, there are, there are options. And they don't necessarily always have to be surgical options like the one that I pursued, right? So my main takeaway is I just want people... To have that sense of you're not powerless, right? Mm. If you are, if take, you know that we we do face a lot of challenges because of just the bias in the system, but you're not powerless. There are options, um, and, and it really just starts by like having these conversations with our family about family history.
0: Great advice. Thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I've learned so much from you. So before we sign off, uh, how can people find you?
1: Yeah, so they can find me on my website, which is my name, ericastallings.com. Erica with a K. Um, As my fiance says, I just be tweeting. (laughs) He's like, he's like you're always he's like you just be tweeting uh, but you can find me on twitter where i talk about you know health health stuff and a whole bunch of other stuff um my twitter handle is quidditch like harry potter quidditch 424 which is my birthday um so yeah you can yeah my website and then my my thoughts on the bird are where you can find me
0: awesome so, um, send me the, send me your socials and stuff and I'll include it in the podcast description and listeners. I'll also link the articles I referenced today. So you can get learned up and follow Erica and for all the Black Woman Be Well family, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram at The Woman Be Well. That's the letter B, woman, letter B, well, we're also on Facebook and stay tuned for a new and improved website yeah right. and we have new ally shirts coming so i'm excited for that so stay tuned for that and with that we're out don't forget to listen learn and be well